Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition on on WFIU. I'm your host this week, Sarah Whitmire. Bob Salzberg is out today. I'm joined by co-host Ben DeBoutier. Today we're talking with our guests about the recent earthquake in Turkey and Syria. We'll be talking about the relief efforts and much more. We have two guests today. Michael Hamburger joins us. He is a professor of earth and atmospheric sciences at Indiana University. And we also have Anatole Chakmak. And Anatole grew up in Turkey near the epicenter of the recent earthquake and currently lives in Bloomington. Thank you both for joining the program today. You can participate in today's discussion. You can reach us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also email in your questions or comments to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also join us on the air with your phone calls, 812-855-0811. So, Michael, I'd like to just start with you. If you can just fill us in on, you know, this is magnitude 7.8 earthquake you can talk to us about the devastation we've seen as a result of that and catch us up. Well, thank you so much for having me here. I, I just want to say, you know, at the outset, uh, our hearts just go out to the victims of this horrific disaster. And if, uh, I've studied earthquakes for about four decades, and I'm, of course, intrigued and fascinated by the, the geologic processes that are manifested in these uh, unbelievable events. But then seeing the actual impact on, on humans really uh, sets us back. And this one is, is uh, one of the severe earthquakes of the century, no doubt. Um, so the basic story is there was uh, a very large magnitude 7.8 earthquake about 10 days ago. Um, what One thing that makes this earthquake unusual was the, that it was followed just nine hours later for a very, by a very major aftershock magnitude 7.5, so a major earthquake in its own right yeah. that has affected a very large region from in southeastern Turkey and, and western or northwestern Syria. Um, so far, you know, as you've been following in the news, the, the death count has climbed over 41,000. Um, but of course, it's a much bigger picture than just that number. There are some um, over half a million people who've been exposed to very strong shaking, um, uh, over 100,000 injuries and tens of thousands of uh, buildings and homes destroyed. So it will be many years while we uh, kind of assess the damage and and start the recovery efforts. Just real quick, Michael, if you could, a 7.8 earthquake, is there another quake that maybe we're familiar with that you could compare that to? Yeah, just to kind of give you an idea of, you know, the the size and the frequency, this is about comparable to the earthquake that destroyed San Francisco in 1906. Uh, It is an earthquake of a size that happens about once or twice a year somewhere in the world. But of course, many of these earthquakes occur in remote areas in the ocean or in, uh, you know, sparsely habitated, uh, inhabited areas. So the impacts are not so great. This one had the unfortunate uh, circumstance to occur in a quite highly populated area, uh, affecting at least two countries in a major way and with felt effects uh, extending much further than that. So this is a very large event and the circumstances of where it hit and the vulnerability of the people and the structures have uh, you know made the impacts that much worse. Anatole, if you could talk about the area where this hit, this is where you grew up and also do you, if you still have family there, what what's this been like your personal experience? 
Yeah, thanks for having me here. Um, yeah, the epicenter is actually my hometown. Um, it is um, just about 20 or 30 miles from my parents' home. And uh, so all that area I'm very, very familiar with. Um, it's very south, um, very south um, uh, east of Turkey, uh, where this uh, Mediterranean meets um, the very east side of the Turkey. And uh, I think there is a fault line that goes over there. I'm sure Michael will tell us about that. And it hasn't been active for a very, very long time that I have been informed. Um, just to, just to tell you, uh, my understanding is we have seven, eight hundred year old buildings in my hometown, Maharaj, and they crumble down. So it tells you that they have been, you know, seen. They have seen so many earthquakes and so many events, and this particular brought one them brought them down. So um, it must be really, really big. Um, yeah, my personal experience. It was very difficult, of course, the first um, 48 hours. Um, we couldn't reach my father or my, my mother. Um, phones were all gridlocked, naturally. Um, and later, we learned that they just, my mom informed me that they couldn't stand up. It was shaking so much that there was no way that they could stand up, so they waited the first initial shock to end. and. Uh, they just ran outside uh, with, in their pajamas, and there was heavy rain and, and snow um, later on. Um, they forgot their phone. They forgot everything, of course. Um, there was no way to go back in for several hours. Um, all the aftershocks, of course, were coming um, at that point. Um, so finally, she had the courage to go in and grab the phone to inform us. That was about seven or eight hours later. Um, my sister called me just about 45 minutes after the earthquake, and she said, I'm taking off. She lives about, um, about four hours drive, a couple hundred miles uh, west of uh, my hometown in Mersin. And uh, it took her a day to reach them because the roads were all... Um, you know, crumbled, and uh, she had to try several different routes to get them. But um, until we heard from them, it was very difficult, of course. Um, but she did reach to them, and, and then there was another ordeal to get out of the town for several um, hours, almost a day, actually. Um, within the earthquake uh, area, of course, there was a um, problem with uh, food, water. Um, water was con contaminated and uh, there was food scarcity, and there was also fuel was a problem. Uh, so she had difficulties attaining all those. But a day, a day after she reached them, and then a day after that, uh, they were secure. But we have lost a lot of family members. Um, I've just informed that my uncle, my father's uh, brother, he was under the rubble. Um, they pulled his wife on the second day, and uh, him, we thought he was dead, actually. Uh, five days later, they brought him up um, alive. That was a miracle. It was a very wow. good news for us. But I was just informed yesterday that um, they had to amputate his leg because under the crash, he, he got infected, and there was no way to save that. Um, lost cousins, his son, his family, their two-year-old child, um, my father's cousins and their families, we lost quite a bit of people. Oh my gosh, I'm so, so sorry. Thank you. Yeah. So m m the city is this mostly like tall buildings? Your, pa yeah. your parents live in a, like a tall building? And yeah, just for our listeners who do not know the area, um, Turkey is mostly mountains, um, so uh, buildings are usually up and uh, uh, buildings are uh, usually uh, done by a concrete, reinforced concrete. Wood is scarce, um, not as plenty as in the United States. So um, people live in, depending on the cities and their code, um, sometimes up to 10, 12 uh, story high, and they're all concrete. So if the building is not up to the code, of course, it will be all sandwiched together. Um, and that's what we're looking for. Um, a lot of the people live like that, um, to live in 
just a single story house is kind of a rarity. So okay. um, just to give you an example, my parents live on a six story apartment building and um, there's probably two or three in each floor and uh, it's about, I don't know, 1,500 square feet, 1,700 square feet, you know, apartment buildings and they're on the f second floor. So okay. So, you know, you had you lived there when there were earthquakes too, and I assume your parents have survived other earthquakes. Um, I, to be honest, uh, I have lived through some three point something to okay. four point something earthquakes, but nothing major like this. Um, what Michael mentioned um, earlier before the show that uh, earthquake. 20 years ago in 1999. I was in the United States then, and just about to take off, actually a week later, I had a ticket to go over there. Um, I was over here in that big major earthquake, but there was other big earthquake between then and this one okay. in Turkey. Yeah. Okay. How aware or like how concerned has your family been about a major earthquake happening? Is that something that has been discussed? With my family, or yeah. you, you mean beforehand? Yeah, like you mentioned that you guys had are on a fault line. Was this mm -hmm. something that people in the area have discussed and been aware of um, as potentially happening? Um, I think we are all very, very earthquake country, Turkey is. I mean, it really is. Um, I don't know how to compare it with Japan, but we are big earthquake country. Um, all the preparation, how much of the awareness, we always hear about it. There's building codes, there's a lot of media information, but how much people actually are prepared, I'm not very sure. Yeah. So in my family's example, I think we felt pretty safe. So, and sometimes when you feel safe, you let your guards down. Well, and how much can you really do when something like that happens? It's exactly. So, you know, just right after this, I have informed my sisters, my brothers, I have two okay. sisters and a brother, that we should have an earthquake bag just ready next to our bed, um, you know, a few necessary items. Uh, even here in the United States, I think it would be very wise to have something like that, basic necessities. Yeah. So, M Michael, can you, can you explain to us a little bit about this fault line and, yeah, if you can start Abs there. Absolutely. So, Turkey is an amazing, fascinating country and of great interest to geologists like me. Uh, in a way, one way to think about it uh, is uh, it has structures that are very much comparable to the San Andreas Fault in California. Um, Turkey is a country that is essentially sitting on not just one, but two fault lines. Uh, and the major one where this earthquake occurred in 1999 is referred to as the North Anatolian Fault. It runs kind of uh, east-west along the northern border of the country and separates uh, Turkey essentially from the Eurasian tectonic plate. Uh, but in eastern Turkey, it intersects another major fault system called the East Anatolian Fault System, which is another one of these giant faults that separates two tectonic plates, the uh, Arabian plate in the south and the, again, the Anatolian or Turkish plate uh, to the north. Uh, and one of the challenges of uh, our field is that large earthquakes happen relatively infrequently. So uh, it has been many generations, perhaps even um, many centuries since an earthquake of this size has occurred along the East Anatolian fault system. Geologists knew it was a uh, an inevitability, but of course, uh, we always say the question is uh, is not if, but when. Um, and if, if you look at a map of earthquake risk in Turkey, the kind of red zones are the ones that follow the North Anatolian Fault and the East Anatolian Fault system. So there certainly was attention among the scientific and engineering community about this, uh, the potential for this kind of earthquake. Uh, and it occurred, unfortunately, at, at a very bad place and also a very bad time at four o'clock in the morning. Most people are in their apartment buildings in bed. Uh, and so there's kind of the maximum exposure to the uh, building collapse uh, that, that we've seen in all the pictures. I just want to make one important general point is, of course, uh, the, there are miraculous stories about people being 
uh, dug out from the rubble of the buildings. And even now, you know, 10 days later, there are some amazing survival stories. But really, the effort to protect lives and save lives has to happen in the years and decades prior to an earthquake. And of course, in this case, prior to the next earthquake, when we work on designing our buildings and our civil structures uh, in a way that will make them more resilient to um, earthquake shaking. And that is one of the big successes of our field. We've learned how to build buildings by and large so that they can withstand such strong shaking. And that's, to me, one of the big tragedies of this event. We see modern buildings built um, since building codes were in effect, but somehow still were unable to survive the shaking. I want to talk more about that because that's that's been a, a whole issue fallout from all of this. But before before we do that, really quick, you know, you mentioned it, it came at four in the morning. Um, is this is probably a really dumb question, but I'm just thinking about volcanoes, how they can scientists can detect changes that are occurring and know that something there's going to be an explosion that's pretty imminent. Is there anything like that with earthquakes? It's not a dumb question at all, and it's been kind of the holy grail for our field as long as I've been in it, the idea that we might be able to predict when an earthquake is coming. Unfortunately, um, earthquakes are a somewhat chaotic process that may start as a small fracture and sometimes just end there with a little magnitude 3 earthquake, and sometimes they cascade into a giant fracture that turns into something like the event we saw here. Um, so there are two areas where there has been big um, advances over the past decades. One is in the area of kind of earthquake forecasting where we can identify areas that are at high risk for earthquake activity over time scales of years to decades. Now that doesn't help with evacuation or anything like that. The other thing that has been a big advance in um, you know, m many developed countries is an earthquake early warning system that is not so much a prediction, but it's an, a, a quick identification of the location and size of the earthquake that gives residents a few seconds warning that might give them time to get out of a dangerous building. And that's just started in California. Japan has had it for quite a few years and Mexico and uh, other countries have as well. Um, that is the type of thing that can save a significant number of lives, even when the engineering structures are not, you know, up to snuff. Was there any sort of warning that your parents received? Um, I don't think so. I actually like to ask Michael a question. Um, we've been informed that this was seven kilometers deep, the where the earthquake happened. Um, can you give us a sense, like, how does, you know, is that deep? Is that usual or...? Yeah, so earthquakes, of course, can occur uh, along a great uh, a great variety of depths. There are even some strange earthquakes that go down as far as 700 kilometers or 400 miles into the Earth's interior. Um, in general, deeper earthquakes tend to be felt over a larger area, but tend to do much less damage right near the epicenter. Um, this type of earthquake, uh, along a, a fracture that slides two plates past one another, tend to be relatively shallow, kind of in the, in the upper part of the Earth's crust. Uh, and that often means that the shaking is very strong near the epicenter. And there's also some, each time there's an earthquake, there's interesting and unique characteristics. There's been evidence that this, um, the, the actual rupture in the fault that produced this earthquake may have been in an unusual class of earthquakes that produce essentially what's the equivalent of a sonic boom as the as the fracture is propagating very rapidly and there were extremely high ground motions recorded by instruments located close to the fault and of course this is something that will take you know months and years to unravel but it appears you know in addition just to describing the size this was this earthquake produced extremely strong ground shaking and that's part of the reason why the damage is so significant over such a large area. Michael, I saw um, an image, I'm sure you probably saw it too, um, of the valley that was created in an olive grove. It was like 13 stories deep, I think. Can you describe to me 
what we're looking at when we see that, like what occurred in that area? To be honest, I'm not certain about the um, the image that you're referring to. What I have seen a lot of images of is, is, again, one of the things that geologists look for in the immediate aftermath of a large earthquake. Uh, interestingly, first described in a very formal way after the 1906 earthquake in, uh, in California. Uh, and that is what's referred to as surface rupture of the fault. In other words, the fault movement um, offsets fences and roads and, uh, you know, bridges. Uh, and of course, anything that's standing along the fault zone is uh, in, impossible to survive that kind of motion. So over a distance of something like 300 kilometers or 200 miles, the ground moved as much as uh, six meters or about 20 feet uh, sliding from from right to left uh, and kind of shearing everything in its path. So there are many images of this uh, fault trace that has kind of cut across the uh, the landscape. And it's kind of, that's the place where the, the strong ground motions emanated from. You're, you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. Today we're talking about the recent earthquake in Turkey and in Syria. If you have questions, you can email them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also send them to us on Twitter at Noon Edition or call 1-812-855-0811. Anatole, so you were talking about your parents and your sister going to help them. Are they back with your sister now? Did they just leave the city? Yes. Yes, they have um, on the on the second end of second day, they left the city. Uh, fortunately, there are millions over there still. Of course, not everybody's as as fortunate. Um, they are back with my sister, and then they flew to my other sister in Antalya, which is a kind of a resort town in Turkey. They are safe now, um, but the trauma, of course, um, you know, all the they have hard time sleeping. They have, um, you know, I don't know. It's going to take a long time to get over with that trauma. And, I mean, ha- have you talked to them just about the the devastation there? I'm just curious what this, um, what their neighborhood must look like. And yeah. it, from what I've read, there's just like, it's really bad weather and folks yeah. don't have anywhere to go. Yeah. Um, if I um, can just set the picture of my town, my uh, hometown is, um, population is about Center is about 300, 350,000 people. The the province is about just about, about over a million. Okay. Uh, just mine. So there are 10 more, just like my hometown, that, that wow. are affected with, with this earthquake. Um, and uh, so 300, 350,000 people just in that, in that center. That olive girl Benta mentioned is, is also there. It's very close to my uh, parents, home, parents' house. Um, and uh, so I have seen some pictures, uh, some family, some friends sent uh, pictures and also internet. Um, seems to me that about 75 to 80% of the buildings uh, in the city collapsed, all the centers, um, all administrative buildings, you know, police centers. So of course that made it even more difficult to get the help and organize it. Um, so, um, you know, and, uh, personal note, all the places I grew up, I went to high school, all your memories and my parents' home, everything is a loss. So so is it, for folks who are in that area, is it just an evacuation effort to get them out of the city for um, now? I think um, some evacuation efforts, but there, there are also a lot of uh, tent cities that are being built and, uh, you know, field hospitals, uh, as well as other necessary things just to you know, keep people in there if they want to stay uh, close to their loved ones, or there are a lot of people who are burying their loved ones and dealing with that. And uh, you know, just to prove who you are after such a devastating event is, you know, who are you? Um, I actually like to talk about something real quick uh, uh, on a note that there are a lot of Syrian refugees in Turkey right now. Um, the, the war created about five, six million Syrian refugees, and some of them are without papers. So uh, my hometown over the last 10 years, every time I went, uh, went from zero Arabic speaking to almost 30%. So mm. it just, you know, influx of these people. And most of these people, I don't know how they will be registered. Uh, so when we talk about the death toll, let's remind also ourselves that some of these folks will be buried without being 
found anything. We don't know who they are, and they, they are without papers, and they are without loved ones, perhaps. So that's another tragedy that just, I just like to point yeah, out. Yeah, can you speak at all just about, I mean, the, the Syria's had the civil war going mm -hmm. on for so long, just how what that atmosphere is like there, and also just the complexities of providing aid mm -hmm. to this area because of that. Yeah. Um, so there are 10 cities, um, and some of the cities like uh, Kilis and Antep, which is about um, s about 100, and 100 miles uh, southeast of my hometown of Marsh. Um, they are as, as much as 50 to 60 percent of the population is replaced with the Syrians. So um, what it did is um, it made a lot of things, of course, very complicated. But um, just related to this earthquake, it made the real estate market very uh, fluctuating and very difficult. So, and then after that, we have the Russian-Ukrainian wars, and um, we had Russian uh, refugees coming and Ukrainians in Turkey. Um, and 13 and a half million people have been told that are affected by this earthquake. That's going to make, on top of this, to place to live or rent very, very difficult. So. Whatever the relief effort, it needs to be done quickly. And uh, temperature-wise, um, it's a little bit milder than Bloomington, uh, my hometown in the region. It's a little bit more south of us in the world. So uh, it does see uh, sub-freezing temperatures you know, these days. I just checked this morning. It was about, uh, about 30, 35 degrees uh, right now. And when that happened, it was, I think, about 25, 28 degrees. I'm not pretty. I'm not sure exactly, but it was it was it was snowing and raining. So um, it is a little bit milder than Bloomington, but not that much. Yeah, to be in a tent in those conditions. We yeah. have a phone call real quick. I do. Uh, Valerie's been been waiting here for a couple minutes. So um, Valerie, go uh, go ahead with your question. I recall over the years having heard or read various. I guess, anecdotal sort of evidence or stories about animals um, being able to sense a large earthquake ahead of time and like birds fleeing an area or other small animals um, or, you know, cats climbing up on roofs or hanging from screen doors. And is this all just uh, bogus or is there anything to this? <laughs> and if there is, what do you think it is that they're sensing? Sure. And I'll uh, hang up and. Okay. Yeah. And thanks for your question, Valerie. Thank you. We'll let Michael take that one. Well, I can take a stab at it. It is one of those longstanding uh, questions in our field. And uh, there was a period, again, early in my career when people had very. Uh, uh, optimistic ideas that we would be able to put uh, sensors on cockroaches or catfish and be able to use their their uh, enormous powers to um, predict when earthquakes are happening. I have no doubt that there are unusual circumstances uh, both that precede earthquakes and in the very early stages of an earthquake that animals may be sensitive to. However, uh, they have proven to be very elusive as uh, reliable indicators. And we often hear stories after the fact about um, the unusual animal behavior that preceded an event. Uh, and of course, we don't get reports of the, uh, the unusual behavior that goes on all the time that is not followed by an event. So I would say by and large, our community has kind of uh, abandoned that as a focus of research and, and focus more on, you know, instrumentation, reliable, uh, repeatable observation of earthquake impacts. Uh, if I can, I just want to say I did a little uh, due diligence in the, in the last moments and found the, the, uh, some of the photographs and drone images that you were referring to about that chasm uh, and an olive grove. And I'll just say, um, one, it, it appears to be that this is an example of a phenomenon that was broadly referred to as ground failure, which can include anything from landslides and rockfalls to a process referred to as liquefaction, where um, soils essentially turn into quicksand and kind of flow out of an area that's been affected by strong shaking. And as the news emerges, particularly from outlying areas, we're going to see evidence of some of these secondary effects that can be very deadly in their own right. 
um, and certainly impede uh, transportation and relief aid uh, efforts uh, as one of those secondary effects of um, earthquakes that can be very damaging. What will that area look like long term? Will people be able to like build over that? Will it be safe to work, like put houses near that ever or farm? You know, it's it's in a broad and complicated area of engineering that's referred to as geotechnical engineering. Uh, it involves um, really the time to do that is before the uh, earthquake occurs is to recognize those kinds of soils and structures that are subject to um, liquefaction or landslides uh, and in some cases some special engineering effects can you know can be instituted to make them uh, safer and by the way some of the human-made structures uh, are often very subject to those kinds of effects and I saw a photograph of a dam in southeastern Turkey uh, where the kind of the earth-filled dam material essentially started to liquefy, cracks started to form in the dam, and there was significant leakage from the dam that had flooded uh, a downstream area. So again, these are kinds of secondary and tertiary effects that play out sometimes over, um, over weeks following an earthquake event. Anatole, I wanted to bring up sort of going back to what you were discussing earlier about the area you're from. It's one of the areas I was reading that um, aid for Syrians is brought in often, but now it's an area needing a lot of aid itself. Is that something that's kind of getting discussed within your family or um, what, like, what is that going to look like? Um, I'm not really sure what's going to look like in the long term, but um, when the first wave of the refugees came in, um, there was a lot of uh, like container living and tent cities to accommodate all the people coming in. And there were aid efforts, of course, all around the world uh, to help that. Um, it seems to me that some places, like some places in Antep, Antep or, or Malatya, a little northeast of us, um, over the years, uh, Syrians left that and then have you know, lived in the cities as they gained papers, uh, however that works. Um, so some of the, the people who got affected and lost their homes in this earthquake, I heard that they moved into there for, um, for immediate relief efforts. They have, those structures have been used um, to accommodate the, the people who got affected from the earthquake. Um, so it did help a little bit. I'm not sure how much. So it's very hard to get accurate information when you're not there, even though you watch the media and follow the social media. It's very hard to get a sense of it, what's really actually happening. Um, it seems very, very devastating. Mm -hmm. um, so much stories, you know, it's, everybody is very emotionally traumatized. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of loss of life. So I think I read before sitting down that there had been 54 arrests. We don't, we can get into this, I guess, as much as you like, but of people um, with relation to architecture and issues with infrastructure. And I'm wondering what accountability is going to look like, what you're kind of hoping for, or like what your thoughts are on that. Um, I think this is a very complicated issue. It has many, many faces. Um, some of them is um, people, uh, some of them is, the, is, is that the code is not followed, I'm pretty sure. And yeah, because uh, you said it was modeled maybe even after like California's or... Yeah, yeah. I think Michael said that. Okay. Um, another is um, we hear sometimes stories about, um, so when you think about these apartment buildings, just like the, the new ones that we have in... Bullington, they like to put um, shops underneath um, and then the living quarters on top. And we've heard instances that people would remove some of the columns to make larger spaces. And of course, obviously that will make a building very unsafe. And some of them are like that. Some of them are not because the code is not followed. Um, maybe shabbily built. Uh, I'm not really sure, but there is a lot of issues like that. And um, and uh, also last 10, 15 years uh, with the population growth and all the refugees coming in, there's uh, very hastily built a lot of the buildings. So I'm not sure if that added up to the problem or not. So 
it's very difficult. You know, I like to, I usually visit uh, back home once a year, at least, um, last at least 10, 15 years, but you're not living there, so you just don't get the whole story, you know, just go there like for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, uh, and then come back, and then you just see snapshots of your city. You don't see the whole stories, uh, so what's really happening, you don't hear all that, so I'm not 100% sure about that. Those are my guesses that it contributed to the effort. Can I add a couple of general general, uh, comments on that? You know, there's something peculiar about earthquakes compared to other natural disasters, say like uh, hurricanes or volcanic eruptions or tsunamis, where um, the shaking itself associated with the earthquake um, is not necessarily deadly. If you were standing out in an open field, even in the presence of a magnitude 7.8 earthquake, you probably get knocked over and, you know, maybe uh, bang up your knees a little bit, dust yourself off and, and, and move on. The, the large death toll associated with this earthquake and many other earthquakes is associated with uh, the human infrastructure. And the, the, uh, it's often said that earthquakes don't kill people, buildings kill people. Uh, and one colleague has even gone so far as to call uh, poorly built buildings weapons of mass destruction. Um, and uh, so it's going to be a long, complicated process to take apart exactly what happened. Um, uh, Anatole mentioned that in this area, there are many old historical buildings. And of course, um, apart from the loss of life, uh, you know, there's a loss of tremendous uh, historical and cultural uh, you know, features that are just an important part of the culture and history of a region. Um, many of those older structures, of course, were built before earthquake design was known about and the the so-called unreinforced masonry buildings are considered at very high risk um, during earthquakes. But the story of this earthquake also includes many uh, younger, more recently built buildings. I just remember the first day after the earthquake seeing a a news story about a two-year-old building that had just recently been completed uh, collapsing entirely. This, again, is a place where our knowledge about earthquake shaking and engineering uh, can play a role in saving lives and and preventing future disasters like this one. So, Michael, it's a 7.8 earthquake, and even the second quake at 7.6, 7.5. Is it possible? I mean, if the code had been followed, would it have been built to withstand something that severe? Well, let me be clear, an earthquake of that size is going to do significant damage if it's in a populated area, no matter what. You know, if uh, California or Japan were struck by an earthquake of this size, there certainly would be casualties. There certainly would be um, some uh, building collapses. Um, but the, at least my initial impressions is that the, the widespread uh, nature of this um, urban destruction is a sign that, um, that that buildings were not, you know, built successfully up to co- to current codes, and um, that we can usually identify, you know, problems that, uh, for example, uh, Anatole mentioned uh, um, reinforced concrete. There are very specific guidelines about the amount of reinforced steel uh, rebar that's supposed to go into the concrete and the way segments of a building are supposed to be bolted together. Uh, And in general, if those guidelines are followed, um, buildings may sustain damage, but they don't collapse the way these buildings do. And just to kind of put it in numbers, um, based on the kind of history of earthquakes striking different countries of the world, the same amount of shaking in a country like the United States or Japan, an area that has been well prepared for earthquake shaking, uh, compared to uh, one where minimal or or unenforced building codes take place, uh, might be a factor of a thousand in the, the the number of fatalities that would be expected after an earthquake like this. So. It's going to be a complicated and, and very fraught issue, kind of figuring out why all this happened. And I'm sure there's a different story for each building and for each area. But uh, by and large, this looks like a really um, 
a real failure of the the uh, infrastructure and the the processes that should protect buildings. So I want to ask about that. I'm Anatole. Maybe you can answer that. So I think it was on NPR. We're hearing, yes, these building codes are in place, but contractors could just pay it fine, and that was less than having to build it to these standards. So. I guess my question is, like, they were paying that fine to somebody, so it feels like the the government agencies aren't necessarily off the hook here, and we're putting so much blame on contractors, but the government was maybe culpable too. Yeah. Um, I'm not an expert. I really don't know, but um, I definitely hear stories uh, similar. Um, You know, there are regular um, stories coming out. Sometimes they could do that. There's a lot of uh, issues um, that need to be fixed in the long term if we were going to build uh, better structures and save more lives. But um, yes, yes, I do believe that played an important role. How would the government get involved now in like having an investigation? Into what, how, how can we how can we do better and make yeah. sure these codes are followed? And I, I'm just trying to figure out how it would be different than how it might be handled in the U.S. Yeah, I really don't know okay. how, how they will proceed from here on. You know, there will be a, a big public outcry, and there will be a lot of pressure on government. That's for sure. And it's I've, I've already seen it. Um, you know, there's a mounting, mounting cry about why the building code's not followed. There's encrypt, so they have to do something. Um, there are some arrests, as Benta mentioned, um, but I'm not really sure how it's going to unfold from here. Um, from here on, how it's going to do, it's hard to, hard to foresee. So, but there will be uh, some significant changes, I, I hope, at least. In, uh, you know, if I, I can add a comment on that, again, just from a general kind of global perspective, um, there's been some writing about this in the earthquake and engineering community. In fact, I just dug up an article after the devastating Haiti earthquake of 2010 that was entitled Corruption Kills, and it actually was an analysis of, um, one, the uh, level of corruption in various industries, and it turns out the building and construction industries worldwide is one of the the industries that is most uh, fraught with the corruption, uh, and then an analysis of different countries uh, and the degree to which um, various measurements of corruption correlate with um, earthquake fatalities. And there's some interesting patterns that develop and troubling ones. And I think after in the aftermath of an event like this, there will be a lot of discussion about you know, who's responsible and what to do about it for the future. Yeah, people want to put the blame onto something, whether it belongs there or not, there's a lot of anger, there'll be a lot of discussion, there'll be a lot of public outcry to, to do it better in the forthcoming future, I'm sure, I'm sure. What did those discussions look like back in 1999? Um, do you remember sort of like what got discussed? It wasn't so long after Erdogan became president, right, in like 2003? Yeah. Um, it's very easy to get into the politics and get lost in a devastating event like that. Uh, we can go probably on hours and hours, <laughs> but um, I'm not sure if we should. Um, that was before the, the administration, today's administration. Um, but um, there were a lot of, I think that was the big, biggest uh, earthquake that got everybody's, everybody woke up you know, at, after that. So there was a lot of agencies that established. There were a lot of codes that's renewed. I'm sure it has saved uh, lives. It, it, it has become like an earthquake preparation 2.0 after that. Um, um, I know that. Um, but I'm not sure if, if it was enough or if the corruption got more after that or less. Um, I'm pretty sure it was um, if that kind of earthquake um, preparation of that magnitude of preparation, you know, kept on since 1999, uh, we would have been, um, we would have been in a lot better place. Uh, it lost momentum and it has gotten, you know, probably ignored for a long time, maybe the first 10 years and after that it just went down and, you know, it could have been better. That's yeah, right. what I'm trying to say. So. Well, and I guess I was hearing, I was listening to a couple of stories about how like urbanization put a lot of pressure for fast development. But Mm -hmm. what has response been like here in Bloomington? What have you talked with people here about? 
Yeah, thank you for asking me that question. I would like to talk about that. Um, of course, we want to come together and do something, whatever we can do, because the worst feeling is being helpless, you know, over sitting over here. Uh, all these news and stories and devastation pouring in everywhere, and you don't know what to do. We can't just take, get on a plane and, uh, you know, be there. And even if we are, you know, you're not, you're not helping anything. So we have developed uh, like over 40 or 50 uh, of our friends over here, and that's just about how many Turks are in town, maybe a little bit more. Uh, we have organized many different ways. We have a GoFundMe page um, that people can, uh, we put a, a humble $50,000, uh, we're halfway there. So if anybody wants to um, make a donation. Um, also, we have just started a nonprofit organization among us, just started last week. Our papers are just coming in, back in. It's called Anatole Relief, um, uh, Anatole Relief uh, Incorporated. The, my name and Anatole Relief and Anatolia, they all come from the one source. That's the big Anatolian pl plateau. Um, so um, sometimes people think like, oh, is it under your name? It is and it is not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and if people want to make a donation, anatolrelief.org is our address. and. It's under preparation, it's not fully developed yet, it's just a week old, um, but there is a link there to go to GoFundMe and anything and everything will help. So we will donate that money into one of the um, NGOs over there called Ahbab. They've been following, um, there's a non-governmental organization. They've, they've been getting a lot of help all over the world and famous people. Um, so we will donate all $50,000 or whatever we can get over there to um, help as much as we can. So, and uh, our friends in the university, the Turkish Student Association, they've been also helping. They've been getting in touch with the departments. Our flyers were going on. People were going talking to churches, and Shalom Center and mosque is holding an event. So, there has been um, effort like on almost every part of the society in Bloomington that we're trying to reach and you know have this little fundraising event to go uh, help anything. You know, if you can help a few families, we'll feel. And 100% of all the donation will go there. Uh, any incurring charges or any kind of spendings that's, that, are, that are needed, uh, we do spend that out of our pocket. So we just want to I just want to make sure that I emphasize that 100% of every penny that is donated is going to go there. So nothing will be taken out yeah. of that fund. So. Your family has all obviously suffered a tremendous loss in this. I'm, I'm wondering about just here in Bloomington. Is it, it pretty much the same story yes. with other other members of the Turkish? Yes, almost everybody knows somebody or has somebody that a family lost. So uh, we went through on the first day of uh, event when we got together uh, hastily. Uh, we got together about thirty or forty people and. I went through each and every person to tell them, give us an update. What's your family situation? What's happening in your town? Um, if they are not from that town, they know somebody from that town. They have friends, they have families, the families' families. So the, there, is, there are stories. Everybody has lost. You know, I have friends. They lost family, friends, cousins, just like us. You know, the human loss is really devastating. I mean, it really is. So nothing is going to be the same. For a long time. For a long time for people from that region. And we are affected. We are really affected deeply. So I'm a little bit shielded with the, with, you know, the space in between us. But how much can you shield yourself? So. Yeah. I mean, do you know are, do you know of students here who might be studying yeah. from Turkey? Yes. And, uh, yeah, there, been, there are students over here who got affected. And then they have been in touch with the university. And... Uh, I'm sure they've been talking about some sort of assistance over here to be given on them, uh, you know, some maybe for their studies, maybe financially. Um, there's some programs going on with the university and the Turkish Student Association, I think, is organizing that. Okay. Um, so. bef I, I want my, there's an event coming up on Monday that I want Michael to be able to, uh, we only have a couple minutes, and he can sort of talk about that as our last question here. But before we do that, Anatole, I just... I just want to ask you, like, what do you expect over the next few days, weeks, months? Like, what what can we be doing? What what's it going to look like recovering? 
Um, you know, for, after the first shock, it seems a lot of the people in Turkey uh, brought people together. These big devastating events usually have an effect like that. So that's a, that's a positive, the silver lining of this devastation. Um, so organization is much better, it looks like. At least the immediate relief is uh, somewhat there. And, uh, but in long term, it's going to have a very, very long um, road ahead. So we will have housing situations, we will have registrations, we will have psychological helps, we will have a lot of troubles to go. Like for our thing over here, we're going to work uh, with this Anatol Relief uh, Fund, non-profit non organization, to do whatever we do, we can um, over the long term. Um, we can maybe raise funds and uh, give somebody housing, so maybe whatever we can do. So yeah. we'll keep doing it until there's no help needed. So. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, Michael, I just mentioned it, but there's a forum on Monday. I know you're going to be speaking. Can you just, you have about a minute. Can you just talk to <laughs> us about that and uh, yes. why people should attend? Yes, I'll, and Anatole also, I hope, will be participating as well. Yeah, I have three um, minutes. I have three minutes. I've been informed. I can talk that. This is a lot we're, more than that. You know, we're doing what we can do as a university on the other side of the earth. And I would say the most important thing that we can do is to show solidarity and support for our brothers and sisters from Syria and Turkey and the affected area and do what we can to help them. This has been uh, catalyzed by the wonderful students from the Turkish Students Association, uh, and it's going to involve some of the expert academic expertise from people who uh, have studied this area of the world and the processes associated with disasters like these, but also a chance for students and members of the community um, to share their own reflections about the event and help us raise funds for supporting the the uh, survivors and the rebuilding of this uh, damaged area. So I hope people will come. It's at seven o'clock on Monday night at the Frangipani Room in the Indiana Memorial Union. Uh, and there is a uh, registration page and additional information at the Asian Culture Center. Uh, big shout out to uh, Melanie Castillo Cullither, who's uh, once again led the charge on a a disaster okay. response effort. So thanks, I hope Michael. I see many of you there. Okay, and we'll have a link to that on our noon edition page, so people can get more information and learn the details. You'll also, be able to listen to the program, um, so you can hear anything you might have missed today. But that is all the time we have. I want to thank our guests so much thank for, you for, for joining us today. Thank you for having us today. Giving us voice. Thank yes, you. Absolutely. Thank you, Benta, for co-hosting today. Our producer Nathan Moore, engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org and from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.